If you will, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans chapter 12. We're going to be in verses 9 through 21 today. Romans 12, verses 9 through 21. This is our passage that is filled with many instructive words for us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us hear now the words of the Apostle Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit as we consider verses 9 through 21. I'll begin reading in verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray together. Father, as we consider these divine directives, as we consider these traits that ought to characterize us as your people, Lord, it's my prayer now that you would come by your Spirit and and just help us see what it means to be a true follower of Jesus Christ. And Father, would you help us even as we consider these commands, as we consider these these instructions, Lord, would you help us to see where, where we need to repent, where we need to change, where we need to be more like Christ. So Father, would you come now and show us what we need to see and help us to respond as you call us to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the ways that you could describe the day in which we live is that we live in a day of rage. Everyone is mad, it seems. Just a quick stroll through the news cycle or social media feeds, I think, demonstrate that fact quite well. You don't even have to do that. You can just get in your car and start driving. Before long, you'll see someone that is filled with some type of rage. Hopefully that is not you. But you think about it. Our world is an angry world. Our tribes, it seems, are becoming more and more entrenched, whether socially or politically or theologically. 
And there seems to be an ever-increasing lack of empathy and unwillingness to extend compassion to each other. We could give example after example of what that looks like in our culture, but I think that just living in our day, you know, you know this. You know that we live in an in a, in a angry time. Maybe it's always been that case, expressed in different ways throughout history. But the question is, how do we as Christians fit into this? Sadly, I think it's often the Christian that seems to be raging the most. We consider the Word of God, we consider that we are called to live in a particular, with a particular calling in a, in a particular way. And as believers, as followers of Jesus, we are called to something much more than what we encounter and often participate in within our culture. We are called to something quite radical. It's this idea called love. It was Francis Schaeffer, I believe, that referred to love as the Christian's final apologetic. I think in some ways he's right. Meaning that the way that we love, the way that we express ourselves to others, ultimately reflects and points to the validity and truthfulness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is the gospel, most importantly, that this world needs. Now, when you come to Romans chapter 12 and you begin reading in verse 9, and as you read through what we just looked at a moment ago, this is a passage that is filled with commands, just one after the other, right? Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. Many refer to these verses as the true marks of the Christian. And as we wade through these commands, we're going to see quite quickly that they give a fuller picture, not only of what it means to be a Christian, but really what it means to love others. Now, now, when you look at these verses, every one of these phrases could be a sermon. So I didn't do that to you. We'd have been a long time in Romans had I broke out each of, one of the, you know, each one of these as a particular sermon. And we could do that. I was tempted. Stephen's preaching next week. I text him, man, how far are you in your sermon prep? But I think when we look at it maybe from a higher perspective this morning, maybe a bigger picture, and we see how all of these elements fall into place in the believer's apologetic, we could say, what it means to love, I think we see a complete picture so here's, here's what we all need to do. Here's how, we need to, here's how you need to approach every passage of the Bible. Particularly when we think about this text, though, I think this is going to be crucial. We're going to cover a lot in this sermon. There's a lot of ground, and some of that just that made some of you real nervous already. There's a lot to say here. And I'm going to do a lot of summarizing, but here's, here's what you're call, you and I are called to do. This is not a text to just brush over quickly. If you just read it, and this is the last time you encounter it this week, you're not really going to be served well by it. So this is what I want to challenge you to, to do this week. 
Maybe some of you have already been reading this passage and leading up to, to the sermon. That's a great practice, by the way, for every week that comes about that you maybe on Saturday afternoon, Saturday night, may just read the passage that's going to be preached the next Sunday so that you can begin to be prepared already for what God is going to teach us through his word. But maybe this week, I would just challenge you, it's not long, maybe just spend some time every day reading back through this passage prayerfully, meditating on what it is that God says to us here, what he calls us to do, and just begin to pray and ask the Lord to help you reflect honestly about these things, about where maybe you and I need to grow, repent, maybe shift some of our focus and time and effort. So that's what we are called to do. There's a lot here, and so we just need to, to understand that this is, this is more than just a 40-minute truth drop this morning. There's a lot here that we need to consider. This is a lifelong endeavor of what you're, you and I are called to be as followers of Jesus Christ. Really, when we come to this passage, the big idea we could say is this, is that we need to let love be genuine. You see that there in verse 9? That is the, the, the in my opinion, the 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 command that, that dominates this section. Some of you could just look at this and you say, well, it's just a lot of commands that tells us to do a lot of things. I think that what you see here in verse 9 is Paul saying, let love be genuine, let it be without hypocrisy, and then he unpacks what that really looks like in various sections of our lives. So then, as we think about that, let love be genuine or let love be without hypocrisy, What does love look like in a community that is shaped by grace? That's really the question we want to try to answer this morning. What does love look like in a community that is shaped by the grace of God? I'd like to tell you there are only two points this morning, and guess what? There are, but there's a bunch of points underneath each of those points. And here's the trick. We don't have PowerPoint today. This is what you're going to see the whole sermon all right? So don't think the, the, the guys in the back checked out on us. No, they haven't. So you're going to have to write some of this down. If you, if you, if you want to retain some of this, you're going to have to write it. And somebody's sleeping beside just write it on their head. It'd be great. <laughs> so just think about ways that you can begin to absorb what God is calling us to do. What does love look like in a community that is shaped by grace? A couple of things that we need to consider here. First of all, we need to, we need to understand a love that is properly grounded. We need to understand what we're talking about first and foremost, don't we? If we're going to love in the way that Christ commands us to love, we need to understand love in the right context and in the right way. I think love is something that many people talk about but very few truly understand. We think about love, we're not talking about a warm-hearted, sentimental kind of thing. One of the things that we see in Scripture is that love ultimately is rooted in the nature and character of God. We know that God is love. He's many things, attributes. He is the foundation of our love, and that means that He is the one that gets to define love. All right? A lot of people are going to define what love looks like for you in our day and time. Ultimately, they don't get to do that. God created love. God exhibits in his own eternal nature what love is, and so he's the one that gets to define it. 
we were to look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, it says, There, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. What John is getting at there is that when we think about love, we need to understand it contextually, meaning that we need to understand that, that it is foundationally connected to the very nature of God, who he is. So then a properly grounded love should not stand in contradiction to the nature and character of God. What then does this kind of love look like? Notice what Paul says here. He says, let love be genuine. And some of these are going to look like just straight out imperatives, but really they're they're words that really explain what he's already said about love. He says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. If you just read that, it's going to seem like all those are disconnected, just random, like rapid fire kinds of commands. They're not disconnected. Really what we could say here is he's saying, let love be genuine, abhorring what is evil, holding fast to what is good. He's describing what it means to have a love that is without hypocrisy. The reason biblical love is genuine is because it has a clearly defined agenda. It doesn't ebb and flow with the prevailing winds of culture. Instead, it abhors what is evil And holds fast to what is good. Now many in our day will say, you cannot genuinely love if you hate. But Paul actually says, you cannot genuinely love unless you hate. Awake now? What I mean by that, and what Paul means by that, is that genuine love does not ignore right and wrong. While you may choose to love in the face of wrong, love does not and cannot call what is wrong right. Love does not blur distinctions. In fact, love is not able to be expressed to its fullest unless it makes a distinction between what is right and what is wrong. Love is not genuine when it approves of something evil or allows someone you love to persist in evil. But that's not what you're going to hear today in our culture. Our culture says today that true love doesn't make distinctions and should, be allow, and should allow people to do what they want. That's true love. And friends, that sounds good. Sounds all-inclusive, it sounds good, it sounds exactly like our culture teaches today, but listen, here's the problem with that view of love. It is completely disconnected from the character and nature of a holy God. What's what's happening there? If you define love as not making distinctions and and it allows people to do what they want to do, then guess who gets, at that point, guess who is the the definer of love? It is you or me or whoever, whoever. I've already said it, since love is rooted in the character and nature of God, he is the one that gets to define what true love is. And genuine love is without hypocrisy. It's it's something that we're called to recognize, and and it makes distinctions. Listen, you cannot value the holiness of God and then love things God doesn't love. 
Here's the thing. All of us make distinctions. Even the most progressive and secular of persons make distinctions. It's simply a matter of what authority drives those distinctions. Are you the authority? Or is God the authority? Or something else the authority? Again, we, we don't decide what is good and evil and then love accordingly. God decides what is good and evil and therefore love is defined by that. Any attempt to blur distinctions is not only impossible, but it actually undermines the fullness of what love, would, what, what love was designed to be to begin with. Now, if you struggle to see this, you think, I'm not quite with you, Pastor. I want you to think about what God has done. Think about us. How does the Bible define us pre-conversion? Well, it defines us in many different terms. Children of wrath, sinner, enemy. Seems to me that God, through his word, has made a clear distinction. And he has called us his enemy. Separated from God, deserving of his righteous judgment. And God has called us what we are. Yet, the Bible goes on to say that God shows his love for us in while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. Listen. You obliterate the gospel if you refuse to make distinctions. The beauty of the gospel is not that God loved his friends. The beauty of the gospel is that God loved his enemies. And that he gave himself for those who didn't deserve salvation. Had there been no distinction of right and wrong and good and bad, the gospel would have been just like any other news. It wouldn't have been good news. It just been news. What makes the gospel so good and glorious and powerful and amazing and majestic is that a holy and righteous God who has no sin actually loves those who are his enemies and are full of sin. So when you say that it's a bad thing to make distinctions, you, when you say that that it's, it's, it's not good or inclusive or welcoming for us to discriminate with love. I would invite you back to consider verse 9. For love to be genuine, it must recognize what is good and what is right what is, versus what is wrong. When God makes distinctions... As he loves. And that distinction did not keep him from us. In reality, it only showed the amazing beauty of his love for us as he sought us and called us to himself. So when we come to this idea of what it means to love, we need to understand a love that is properly grounded. It is not some kind of ooey gooey feeling that we just kind of have a warm thing about in our in our soul. And it's not something that we get to define on our own terms. It's not something that we say, well, this is what love looks like because it feels right. 
God is something, love is something that God defines because it is right, because he is right, and he is good. Now, we could go on and on and say more about that, and we could go back and connect some other passages here, but we need to move on because there's about 2,000 other commands in this, in this passage. Not really. So if we have a love that's properly grounded, that it's connected really to the nature and character of God, then we will also have a love that is properly expressed. That's the second point. First point is a love that's properly grounded. It's connected to the nature and character of God. It recognizes what is wrong from what is right, from what is bad, from what is good. And now a love that is properly grounded is going to be rightly expressed, and we're going to see that in the rest of this passage. There are many commands scattered throughout this chapter, and if we were to attempt to try to organize these commands, a lot of scholars have tried to, to organize these into kind of sections, and it, it doesn't really fit nice and neatly that way, but if you're one of those that like categories, this will be somewhat helpful to you. What we find typically, there are exceptions, but typically in verses 10 through 16, these tend to highlight our responsibility and the relationship that we have towards other believers, whereas verses 17 through 21 tend to focus on our responsibility and relationship to those who are not believers, okay? So, so you see the two categories here, a love that is properly expressed, and as we consider those commands, I'm actually going to break them down into four categories so that I think that we can see exactly what we're being called to here. First of all, a love that's properly expressed understands its responsibility to God. See that in verses 11 and 12. We'll be jumping around just a little bit here to try to keep with some of these categories. Our responsibility to God is the first thing that we need to consider when we think about a properly expressed love. Look at what the text says. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Notice here the God-centeredness of the love that we're called to express. For us to love rightly, we have to first and foremost love God. Right? Jesus said something about that. What is the greatest commandment he was asked? And he said, you're to love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. Summarizing the first table of the law. Great commandment. And listen, when you think about loving God, I know sometimes, again, we, we want to kick into this sentimental, warm, warm feeling kind of thing. And I'm not discounting the emotional reality that love often has with it, that, that's real. But that's not the only thing. We're called to love and obey God. We're called to, to, to love God. We're called to, to be responsible to Him. Listen, the way we express our love to God is through our obedience to Him. You see that here? Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Our obedience and service to God is to be characterized by a zealous, hopeful enthusiasm. Just think about your own heart to the Lord right now. Could that be said of you, that your heart for God is characterized by a zealous, hopeful enthusiasm? 1 John chapter 5, 
Everyone who believes that Jesus, this is verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. The two are together. This is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. Not burdensome. Several quick observations about how we express our love for God here in Romans 12. First of all, we see that love for God is not lazy. Love for God is not lazy. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit, literally set on fire by the Spirit. I used to always think that it's kind of a cheesy thing when people say, well, are you on fire for the Lord? Well, it's actually a biblical thing. Set ablaze. When you're boiling in a positive way in the Spirit. This passion, this zeal, marking and characterizing someone's life. Loving God and living as a Christian, friends, is no light work. It requires this ongoing intensity. Listen, intensity and zeal matter. And don't settle for less. Now, how that manifests itself in different personalities will vary. Listen, we know that in in Revelation 13, Jesus to the church of Laodicea said this in verse 15, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you be either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm, I will spit, literally vomit you out of my mouth. Jesus has no tolerance for lukewarmness. He has no tolerance for lazy Love. There's a level of intensity here that we're called to. Love for God, friends, is not a lazy thing. Now realize there are, there are many examples we could point to, many ways that we maybe want to try to, to flesh this out in our own life. I think this command is for all of us. Let me just point out, maybe try to draw out a few areas of application where this might prove helpful. First of all, I think this is, this is a temptation for those who are wealthy. If you live in America, you're wealthy. So that's all of us. If you live in St. Mary's County, you're even more wealthy. Listen, the more we have seems to have an impact on our hearts, our attitudes. That's why Jesus speaks so much about our treasure, why our treasure ought to be in heaven, not here in this world, and why on one occasion he even said it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven. Those who are prone to laziness in their love for God can often be caught up with the things of this world. Another group that are prone to laziness in their love for God are students. Whether you're in school locally or going off to college, the vast majority of students often tempted to think that they can somehow push pause on their Christian calling and responsibility 
postponing service to Christ and his kingdom. Listen, friends, do not buy that lie. I think students have a unique opportunity, a unique opportunity and occasion to manifest their love and service and obedience to Christ in a way that many of us do not have. As a student, right now you have more free time and more, uh, or not more, but less commitments than you'll ever have in your life. Ever. And all the adults that have been through college say, Amen. Don't let the things of this world rob you of your love for God. Don't let the things of this world steal your energy and compassion and intensity for Christ. Some of the people that have made the most impact on the world throughout history have been in their teens. Another group that are prone to laziness in loving God is the busy. All of us, again. All of us can be lazy in our love for God. And listen, the more you are involved in in your life, the lazier in your love for God you might be. And here's the, here's the trick in that. It's deceptive because the busier we feel, we won't feel lazy. When you're running at, at, at some kind of wild, crazy, chaotic speed, and, and you're going from here to here to here to here, and you're dominated by work, you're dominated by kids' stuff, you're dominated by this, and then I've got to squeeze church in here. I mean, you don't feel lazy when you're running at that kind of speed, do you? You just kind of fall into bed at night, and you're, you know, the last thing I am is lazy. I mean, my goodness, give me a break. That's why it's so deceptive, because you're, you're feeling, you're, you're, you're feeling, you're filling your, your time and your energy with so many other things that your love for God is being squeezed and squeezed and squeezed. You don't feel lazy. Do not be slothful in zeal. Burn. Boil. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Love for God is not lazy. Number two, love for God is joyful. Rejoice in hope, he says, even when life is going at breakneck speed, when things are discouraging, crushing, disappointing, we can still rejoice in hope, he says. Listen, present circumstances are not the driving factor of your joy. This is true because we know that this life, this world is not it. We have a Hope. Notice he says there's an object of our joy. Rejoice in hope. Hope of what? Hope of eternity. Hope of heaven. Hope with Christ forever and ever. That is what we hope in. One of the ways that we express our love for God is by keeping our gaze constantly on him and all that he's done for us in Jesus Christ. Resting in his promises and provision. Friend, you may be here today and you, you don't know what that hope looks like. You just hear rejoice and hope, but you don't feel very hopeful. 
You see the things of this world and the burdens of this world, the chaos of this life, and you, you don't find a lot of hope. You're surely not going to find it in worldly things. And the promise of the gospel is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into this world. He lived a perfect life, and yet he died the sinner's death so that your sins can be forgiven and so that you can have hope. He died for people just like you. That if you would not trust in the things of this world, but you would place your hope, your faith, your dependence, your trust upon him, all that he's done, as he lived obediently, and he's died sacrificially, and as he was raised three days later from the dead, and he sits at the right hand of God today, and he's interceding for us, and he's promised to come again. He did all of this to appease the righteous judgment of God against our sin so that your sins can be absolutely forgiven and so that you can have a perfect standing with God forever. If you would put your hope hope in him, that is what you would be called to. Therefore, you can rejoice in hope as a believer. This is also that we're to be patient in tribulation because of this hope. Listen, love, love doesn't complain and grumble. It rests. Think about the love that we have for God as we're rejoicing in our hope, as we're being patient in tribulation. It is in the midst of those pressure points of life that we're most often tempted to complain and grumble, aren't we? But that's, not, that's not love. When, when those grumblings come out of your soul, that is a, not an expression of love for God. It's actually an expression of your frustration with God. Love for God does not complain. Love for God does not grumble. It rests. And friends, I'm preaching that to me just as much as anybody in this room. My picture used to be beside the word grumble in the dictionary, complain. It may still be there in some of the older editions. Love for God is full of joy. Number three, love for God is prayerful. Notice what the text says. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. It's Charles Spurgeon that said, a prayerless soul is a Christless soul. Our love for God is most obvious in the way that we pray to God. Prayer is the expression of our dependence upon God the Lord, and it's love for God that leads us to cry out to God and to trust God. Listen, he says, be constant in prayer. You say, maybe you're saying I should be praying right now, not listening? Is that what, is that, be constant. No, no, all he's saying is that treat prayer like you do other things, right? I mean, no one has to tell you to be constant in eating three meals a day. No one has to be constant in telling you to be work on time. No one has to tell you to be constant in studying. I mean, maybe some of the parents have to say that on occasion, but no one has to tell you to be constant in getting enough sleep. I mean, we do these things, right? The same with prayer. It's to be constant. It's to be a regular routine in our life where we are constantly crying out to the Lord, trusting in Him, This is an expression of our love for God. And so when we think about loving God, we could go on and on, but love is not lazy. Love for God is joyful, and love for God is prayerful. 
Just think about those three areas. I mean, that's enough, isn't it, to think about this morning? When we think about our love for God, we could just we could expand, but I mean, that's enough for me. Where, where in my life am I showing laziness or, or lack of zeal or, or apathy in my, my heart, my, my desire for, for God and the things of God? Where, where's my joy? What does my prayer life look like? There, all of those things are, are great ways to evaluate your love for God. Now, we see love expressed in our love for God, but also in our responsibility, our responsibility to one another. You're going to see that in verses, really, 10 down to verse 16. A couple years ago, we went through the one another's, and several of them were found here. What we find here is particularly, particularly evident in these verses is the calling that we have to each other. Now, I've summarized all of these categories or all these commands here in seven responsibilities that we have to each other. Again, each of these could be a sermon. I won't preach them as a sermon, but each of them could stand alone as a sermon. First of all, we're called to love warmly. Look back in verse 10. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, holding fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. This, this family kind of calling here. Peter says in 1 Peter 1.22 that we are to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Love one another with brotherly affection. Notice here that God commands us not just how, what we ought to do, but how we ought to feel. He's getting at the heart level, the affectionate level here, isn't he? He says, love one another, do that, but do it with brotherly affection. It's tenderness, this compassion, this care. God commands that what we ought to feel toward each other, not just how we ought to act. And so to feel cold or to feel indifferent or to feel resentful toward other believers is actually to undermine and contradict who God is. Called to love warmly. The Gospel of John, we know in verse 13, excuse me, in chapter 13, verse 35, by this all people, Jesus says, will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The best way that this world will know that you're a Christian is going to be demonstrated in how well you love other Christians. Period. Number two, responsibility that we have is to give preference. Notice he says in verse 10, outdo one another in showing honor. To give preference. To recognize that everyone is created in the image of God. And to give preference to others. You know, this would have, maybe not, it doesn't sound so radical in our day, but this would have sound, sounded quite radical in, in this day and time when it was written. Because this world in which Paul is writing into was such a hierarchical kind of world. It's just how things worked. And for some to be called upon, especially those who were in high status and power, were called upon to show honor to those who were lower than them, was a radical thing. Friends, we are called to outdo one another in showing honor. The problem is, is that we like the honor ourselves, don't we? We like the light. We like to be honored. Even those of us who, who like to kind of 
maybe shy away from that kind of thing, or I don't make too much of me, we actually really like it. It's called pride. But here we're called to give preference. We're called to outdo each other in showing honor. Number three, we're called to practice generosity. If you jump down to verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints. Called here to have an eye open to need. Meeting needs. Part of that's going to require in our own soul, and our own heart, fighting against greed. Where is it within the body of Christ that there is a need and, and generous Generous living means we move toward that need without being asked. We don't wait for the mill train to come out and then act, although that's a good thing. We move towards need. We move towards ministry opportunities. We practice generosity. That is the overflow of a Christian who genuinely loves one another with brotherly affection. Number four, we show hospitality. It says it there in the text in verse 13. Not only are we to contribute to the needs of the saints, but we're to seek to show hospitality. We're called to open our lives and open our homes to each other, to strangers, but also to each other. Adam, it's 2018. You can't open your home to a stranger. Well, we're commanded to. It's how we love the world. Again, don't make distinctions. We need to be wise. We don't need to just invite danger or violence into our home, but we need to open up our homes. I love what Rosaria Butterfield wrote in her book. I think that some of you are reading right now on hospitality. She said, Christians need to use their homes more like embassies, not castles. We oftentimes think about our homes as being that refuge, places of refuge, and that is for many of us, right? In a sense, it is a place of refuge, but it is ground zero for ministry. There's far better ministry that can take place in your living room that can ever happen right here in this seat. Not only in your home, but steward your time here at church well. Be hospitable even in how you interact. Be welcoming, be engaging, be inviting, be warm, be, be looking for opportunities to show hospitality, even if it's two minutes. Number five, we rejoice and weep with others. Rejoice with those who rejoice, we weep with those who weep. One of the marks of a true Christian is going to be seen in his or her ability to rejoice with others in their successes even when you do not enjoy those same successes. You see, envy and jealousy can often hinder us here, can it? Someone has maybe got a promotion or made the team or has some kind of honor or mention and received some kind of award and we thought we should have got that. Mark of a true Christian rejoices with those who are rejoicing We weep with those who weep. Often refer to this just as the ministry of presence. How do you weep well with those who are weeping? Just show up. A lot of times people ask me, well, what do I say to this person that's going through this time? Don't say anything. That would be the best thing. Just be present. Brothers and sisters, let me commend you on how well that many of you do this way that you show yourself faithful and 
giving and generous, ways that many of you open your homes and steward your resources, the way that many of you have done well in rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. And I'm grateful to be able to point to how great of a model many of you are in doing these things. It goes on in verse, uh, number six, it says he calls us to live in harmony. Live in harmony with one another. Friends, again, we live in divided age. But the gospel is what brings us together despite our differences. You know, in, in, the, in the day of, in which we live where people are so entrenched and so divided over so many different things, Christians fall right into that. Yet we're called to work through our differences, not ignore them or entrench ourselves. The last thing, when you disagree with another believer, the last thing you need to do is to write that believer off as ignorant, or they just don't get it. Maybe they're growing. Maybe it's you that don't get it. You, you don't know. I mean, you, we're both walking through this process we call sanctification. Friends, live in harmony with each other. That doesn't mean that you have to always agree with everything everybody says. You would find yourself miserable if you were trying to do that. Well, you are called to live at peace. You are called to, be, called to, to live in harmony. There's several things there. Just learn to listen to each other. Slow to speak. Be, be someone who listens. Engage in gracious conversation, even when you disagree. Be willing to learn. One of the things I've tried to do over the past couple of years when I don't necessarily agree with a particular viewpoint is I read up on it. I want to study. I want to get into the mind of other people so I can understand where they're coming from so that if I have opportunity to interact, I want to do so in a way that's inviting and caring and compassionate and maybe realizing that I don't know everything myself. Whether that's politically or socially or theologically, it's a wise thing to do, friend. And then he says in number seven, associate with the lowly. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Just the, the mark of humility permeates this entire passage. Never be conceited. This addresses both task and people. A Christian should never think this person or this task is beneath me. Ever. You should never think that. So, what does all of this say to us? Again, all of these could be sermons. I get it. There's a lot we're leaving unsaid. But I'm hopeful that you will spend time praying through these things. In fact, this is something I would highly recommend. When you think about these, I've categorized them. There's more than seven, but I've just categorized them in, in seven responsibilities. To love warmly, to give preference, to practice generosity, to show hospitality, to rejoice and weep with others, to live in harmony, to associate with the lowly. All of this involves and necessitates self-denying, intentional generosity. Just take two of them, two or three of them, and, and, and prayerfully consider where you're weak in these areas. Begin to prayerfully ask God to help shape you, maybe to be more faithful and generous, to be more inviting and warm, to not be so divisive, but to live in harmony. One of the things that we see in this passage is that God does not save us independently to be independent. He saves us to be interdependent. 
upon each other. Friend, if you're a member here of Redeeming Grace, you have a special responsibility to love and care for these other fellow members. God will hold you accountable to it. It is your responsibility to do these things that we've just said to this group of people particularly. All Christians everywhere when you have opportunity, but uniquely in covenant with these fellow members, this is your responsibility that you have, that I have to you, you to me, and we to each other. And notice here, I I get it, it can often be hard and challenging and discouraging. Time's filled with joy as well. But I want you to notice how the Bible places the responsibility here. Notice the responsibility is on you. We're called here to take an active role. We're not called to passively wait for others to seek us. We're actually commanded to seek them. All of these things here, to love warmly, to give preference, to practice generosity, show hospitality, to rejoice and weep, to live in harmony, to associate with the lowly, these are not things that you do in response to people doing them to you. These are callings that just the Christian has. Because God loves him or her so much, he now wants to show that same love and compassion to others regardless of what you get in return. This is normal Christianity. Galatians 6 verse 10, Paul exhorted the church to do good to all people, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Do good to everyone but especially to your fellow brothers and sisters. Let's do that well, friends. Again, take a couple of these and just consider them, how how you can prayerfully look through some of these this week and mull over which of these need more and more attention in your own life. And last but not least, we have our responsibility to our enemies. One of the ways that you express a genuine love You express it to God, you express it to one another, but you also have a responsibility to our enemies. One of the things that I didn't want to, maybe you checked out on me already, but I didn't want you to check out when I said that whole thing about genuine love actually learns to hate certain things. I'm not necessarily referring to certain people. As a pastor told me I could hate. No, I didn't. I will call you on it if you ever use that in a quote to somebody else. I called you to hate evil, hate sin. We have a responsibility even to our enemies, and you see that in verses 17 through 21. And one of the reasons I'm not really trying to explain these in quite vivid detail is they speak for themselves, don't they? Repay, or verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for vengeance is mine, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, give him food. If your enemy is thirsty, give him drink. By so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Wow, there's so much there. All of this goes, against, goes so much against what we feel, doesn't it? This doesn't feel normal. You're right. It's not normal. It requires a transformed heart. It requires you to be changed by grace. It requires the Holy Spirit to take up residence in your life because this, friends, will not come naturally to you. 
If someone hurts us, our natural impulse is to hurt them back. But that is not the way of the gospel. He's really highlighting how we relate personally here to others. Called to reject revenge. You see that in verse 14. This is not a call, by the way, to avoid matters of justice, matters of righteousness. It's a call to how we personally relate to people. It's not your job or my job to bring revenge upon something wrong that's been done to us. Again, there are, many, there, there are going to be many people who don't like you. Notice he says we're to bless our persecutors. There are going to be many who don't like you simply because you're a Christian. You're going to be the odd duck and the person that annoys people at work because you say you're a Christian. And there are going to be people who don't like you for a hundred other reasons. Again, maybe you've been given the job they wanted. Maybe you were chosen for the team and they weren't. Maybe you just annoy them because you're you. Friends, the point is that people will stand opposed to us stand opposed to us over many issues, and oftentimes their response to us is filled with hatred and anger. But we are not called to respond in kind. Listen, we do unnecessary damage to the gospel when we act like our persecutors and return evil for evil. Our day is full of anger and hate and vengeance and retaliation and violence, and yet the Christian is called to something different. We are not called to retaliation We're called to love. We're called to be patient. We're called to reject revenge. God will settle accounts once and for all. And in a way that's fully and totally just. Number two, we're called to live honorably. See in verse 17, not to retaliate, but to to live the good, literally. We should conduct conduct ourselves in a way that is honorable, even in a way that is recognized by the pagans. We're to make peace. This is huge. Our responsibility is to be a peacemaker. Now, certainly we're not called to be a doormat. We're called to be peacemakers, so long as it depends on you. See, what we often do is is we want to point to the other person. Well, if they would get their act together, if they would do this, or if they would do that, then I would do this. No, that's not what the Bible calls you to. It says, as long as it depends on you, be peacemaker. Live peaceably with everyone, regardless of how they may respond, regardless of how they may be treating you. We have a responsibility to seek peace and to do good. You see that in verses 19 through 21. How do we overcome evil? We don't overcome evil by doing evil. We overcome evil by doing good. Listen, evil cannot overcome the Christian by harming us or even if it kills us. Evil doesn't win when a martyr goes down. You know how evil wins? when you join it. So no matter how you've been treated, no matter the things that you've suffered, no matter what it is that you have to endure in this life, a Christian cannot ultimately be overcome by evil unless that Christian decides to embrace it. One of the unfortunate marks within the Christian church is the sad reality that Christians often do not bear the marks of goodness. Just look at their comments on Facebook. They look no different than the world. 
Friend, we're called to overcome evil with good. So what does a true biblical love look like? These things. It's a love that has the right foundation and a love that has the proper expression. It's seen in our responsibility to God, to one another, and even to our enemies. Friends, Christian love is really a unique thing, isn't it? There's nothing like it in the rest of the world. Christian love, biblical love, has no equal in our culture in our day. It's a love that we could never muster up ourselves, but one that is supernaturally birthed in our hearts. And there's really no way for us to love unless we keep our gaze firmly fixed on the Lord Jesus. And here's why. Because it was the Lord Jesus Christ that has loved us perfectly. The Lord Jesus is the only one who has loved without hypocrisy. He's the one who is the embodiment of genuine love. Because he gave himself for the unlovely. Brothers and sisters, that is a mark of love. We've been loved much, so let us go and love others likewise. If love indeed is the final apologetic, then let us go forth and be found loving each other well to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this exhortation, these many exhortations. Father, there is much in these verses to meditate upon and consider. There is much for us to grow in. Father, I know that I'm most convicted when I think about just my own laziness towards you. Father, I'd even ask for your forgiveness for my apathy and my laziness and my lack of zeal and my lack of energy, my lack of intensity for you and the things that please you. Father, would you search each of our hearts this day? Would you help us to see areas for which we need to improve and grow in? Lord, this is not, it's not that you save us and then that's it. Lord, we are a continued work in progress. And so, Father, would you meet us wherever we are in that work and continue to take us forward? Father, we know that we've been loved much. Would you help us to love like you love? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.